Right. Now, we were, we were clicking along pretty good there for uh, a while when we were coming through the seven letters to the seven churches back in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, we kind of got held up there in that Philadelphian church period, that letter to the church in Philadelphia. But boy, after we, uh, after we got out of chapter 3, we were scooting along pretty good there until we came to chapter 11, Revelation chapter 11. And once we got there, we purposely slowed down because I've been showing you over the last several weeks now that this is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, if not the most important chapter in the, in the Bible. And I say that as in terms of a, a particular chapter that is going to open up the Bible to you or a, a book or a, a chapter that is going to keep you doctrinally straight, you, you, Revelation chapter 11 is just that key of, of a chapter. And what makes this chapter so important is really what you do with this chapter is going to determine what you do with the Jew. Now, listen very carefully. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter, yeah, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 that the Bible is a book that is not just to be read. The Bible is not just a book that is to be believed. The Bible is a book that is to be studied. And it is to be studied for one, at least one intent purpose. And that is to make sure that we make right divisions. 2 Timothy 2.15 says that we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not to be ashamed, which means that it is possible to get in this book and one of these days find yourself ashamed. And he says, so that we study, so that as workmen we need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And, and the key that, that God has set in the Bible that is going to determine whether or not you rightly divide his book or or whether you wrongly divide his book, is going to be what you do with the Jew. And we, we've talked a lot about that in recent years, the, the fact that as far as the Bible is concerned, the Jew is the ancient landmark. And what it says in the book of Proverbs is, do not move the ancient landmark which your fathers have set, because the result of that is going to be, you may wind up in the fields of the fatherless. You may think... You would be going along thinking you're one place and really find out that, that, that you're, you're another. And if you're going to lose your way out there in the, in the Bible, we talked about the fact <clears throat> that you're probably going to do it in, in one of three books or, not, or any number of those three. It's going to be the Gospel of Matthew, the book of Acts, and the book of Hebrews. And we talked about that those are, those are books that are, have a, a very distinct Jewish character to those books. And if you do not know where to place the Jew... You'll find yourself grabbing some, some bad doctrine, but if you're going to understand those books, what you've got to do is you've got to understand the Old Testament. But if you're going to understand the Old Testament, you've got to understand the book of Revelation because all of the stuff in the Old Testament ends with the completion of that thing in the book of Revelation. And if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, then you've got to understand Revelation chapter 11. So for that reason, we've purposely slowed down just a little while to make sure that we have our, our bearings Make sure that we see how Revelation chapter 11 uh, relates to the whole of the Bible. Now, Revelation chapter 11 itself, as we've seen, comes as a parenthesis in the midst of God bringing us through the second half of the tribulation period. If you're a guest with us, maybe you're not familiar with the book of Revelation. The tribulation period is a seven-year period of just that, of incredible trouble 
on this earth where God is meeting out his judgment upon the earth. And where we find ourselves in chapter 11 is a parenthesis in the book of uh, of Revelation that is showing us some things that were going on during that three and a half years of the, the second half of the tribulation, what Jesus referred to as the great tribulation, that last three and a half years of that seven-year period. And, and what verses 1 through 14 are actually talking about here is the coming of the messengers, and the messengers, of course, being the infamous two witnesses of the book of Revelation that have gotten so many people messed up through the years. And, and we really just started into our outline last time, beginning to look at the warrant assigned to the witnesses. And we really didn't get too far on that, and, and haven't even really begun to this point to talk about the identity of these, these two witnesses, because we, we began talking about the special place involved here. Now, now most folks, in their, their zeal to, to identify the two witnesses, they miss the significance of the, the special place where the witnesses carry out their ministry. And if you were here last week, hopefully you understand now why, why this place where these men carry out this ministry is such a significant place. And, and what we did last week is we... We just we, we went on a search to try to find out why it is that in that the city of Jerusalem, and I'm talking about the city of Jerusalem right now, in nineteen ninety eight, I'm talking about this morning, why it is that the city of Jerusalem is the focal point of the entire world. I don't care where you go in this world. People know about the city of Jerusalem, and they have their eyes on it. It's going to be in the news this week, and I promise you, I don't, I don't care what, what the news is covering, somehow the city of Jerusalem is going to find its way in there. We, we talked about the fact that for some reason, that piece of real estate has been the most contested piece of property on this entire planet, and it has been that way century after century after century. And what we did last week is we, we finally came to the point, at least in my mind, where we concluded that if you take God out of the, the, the picture, there is absolutely no explanation for that city getting that kind of, uh, of, of, of renown. And, and we talked about how it, its significance as a city is not so much because of what is actually taking place there right now, but do you remember? But because of what did happen there in the past and because of what will happen there in the future in other words that that city is what it is in the on the world scene today because the god of the bible made that city the center of history and the very heart of his his purposes for this planet and for the people of this planet and as we saw last time and we'll talk further today it is going to be the place where he will ultimately get his last word. And you can see on your study sheet there that if you, if you go through the Bible, and, and that's, that's what I did this week, and just looking at this significant place a, a little bit deeper, if you just go to the Bible and you just, I mean, plug in Jerusalem or, or Zion, you know, take your concordance and, and do that thing, what you're going to find is just some incredible stuff that God has to say about this, this city. Let, let's just work through it here. 
But what you find is that according to Psalm 137 and verse 6, it is God's preferred city. It's his preferred city. In Psalm 102 and verse 13, it says that it is his favored city. According to Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 2, Jerusalem is God's chosen city. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 6, tells us that God chose it to be the city where he would place his name. In Psalm 132 and verse 13 tells us that he chose it to be his habitation. And that's why Psalm 48 and verse 1 calls it the city of God. Hebrews 12:22 calls it the city of the living God. Psalm 48 and verse 2 calls it the city of the great king. Psalm 48 and verse 8 calls it the city of the Lord of hosts. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 15 says it is the city called the perfection of beauty. That same verse goes on to call it the joy of the whole earth. Psalm 137 verse 5 says that it is a city that God will not forget. Isaiah 62 verses 1 through 7 says it is the city of which God said he will not rest until it is established, until it is a praise in the earth. In Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 3, it is the city of which God said, I will return unto Zion. You thought that was MacArthur talking about the Philippines. I will return unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. And you'll notice in the passage that we're dealing with here in Revelation chapter 11, verse 2 calls it the holy city. And verse 8 calls it the great city. And I went through all of those this morning just so that you make, make sure that you've got it in your mind that as far as God is concerned... There is no place like Jerusalem. Will you give me that? I mean, you just go through that list. There's something significant about that piece of property. And if you're wondering why this this little seemingly insignificant city holds such an incredible place of significance in the affairs of modern man, you can just look on your study sheet right there because I just gave you 16 reasons that provide the only explanation for it. And yet, you know, what's, what's ironic about this whole thing is, is as close as we are to the events of Revelation chapter 11 actually coming to, to place on, on this planet, most of the Jews who are presently living in the city that the Bible calls the city of God don't even believe in God. Do you know that? Oh, I thought they were Jews. It, it, well, it, it, they're Jews, but it's a national thing for most of them. Most of the people that live this morning in the city of God are atheists. And what's just so unbelievable about that are, are, are the, the incredible number of unexplainable miracles. And I, I mean absolute miracles that it took to get the Jew back into the land in the first place. And yet what most of the Jews believe this morning is that it was a result of just an incredible stroke of good luck, perfect timing, and just... The fact that they are tenacious as a group of people willing to shed their blood, their sweat, and their tears. Now, 
the last time when we were talking about this, this special place involved here, we spent most of the time talking about the significance of the, the city where the, the temple is located, more so than we did the, the temple itself. But let's, let's talk about the significance of the temple. Okay, we're, we're talking about the, these witnesses, but before we, we get into all of the nitty-gritty about all of that, and we you know, give all the reasons that we believe that these are you know, these guys and all that stuff, uh, let's don't miss some of the stuff that it happens before we ever get there. And one of the significant things that we see in this chapter has to do with the temple. And I want you to see how, how this plays such a vital role in, in, in the prophecy of the end times and, and, and all of these things. And to really understand it, you're going to have to, this morning, get just a little bit of a history under your belt of the temple. Now... This is one of those things where you never know where people are going to land on it. You know, some of you probably think you know more about the temple than, than you actually know. Some of you may have, you know, set your life to study this thing. Some of you have not quite understood just yet why it is that this temple plays such a part in the end times prophecies. And so we want to talk a little bit about that. But let, let, let me just give you a quick little quiz, okay? Let's let just see how you do before we go into the study of the temple to let you know whether or not you need to listen or not. But if, here's just a little pop quiz, okay? How many actual temples have there been in the past? Do you know? Okay, you don't have to answer out loud. I'm just wanting you to think with me. How many does the Bible say that there will be in the future? Who came up with the idea of the temple? And what gave him the idea and if, if Herod wasn't even a Jew, he was a pagan, then why is it that the temple that you see in the New Testament, that Jesus would go in and all of that, why is that temple called Herod's temple? Does the temple have to be rebuilt before the rapture? Does the temple have to be rebuilt at all? And so these are just some of the things that we'll, we'll try to discuss here as we, we look at a little bit of the history of this. And we're going to look at, at this from all three dimensions of history. And, of course, you know what they are, the past, present, and future. We'll look at the temple past, the temple future, and then we'll talk about the temple present. Now, when we talk about the, the temple past, it's important, first of all, that you understand the prototype of the temple, the prototype of the temple. Now, for some of you younger folks, uh, a prototype is it's an original model or, or what it's it's what's used to serve as a, a pattern to build something. Uh, when somebody makes an invention, they begin by making a, a prototype of the, this thing. Okay, so we're going to talk about the prototype of the temple. And you remember that when when God gave to Moses the law, you'll remember that at that same time, he received instruction to build what God called a tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 25 and verse 9, that's the first mention of the word tabernacle in, in the Bible. And God was telling Moses that he wanted him to build a tabernacle. The word tabernacle means dwelling place. And that's exactly what God intended the tabernacle to be. It was his dwelling place in the midst of his people. And of course, you will remember at this time in Israel's history, God had delivered them out of the bondage that they were in in Egypt, and they were being led by God into the land that he had promised them. 
And what the tabernacle was, was a place in the midst of Israel's camp in the wilderness where God's presence would dwell. You remember that in the midst of that tabernacle, there were certain pieces of, of, of furniture, there, there were certain uh, items that were put into the thing. One of those was the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant being that which represented in itself the presence of God with his people. And in Numbers, uh, or the book of Exodus, chapter 25 through, through 30, what God says repeatedly through that chapter is he's, he's talking about this tabernacle. He says, and there I will meet with thee. And there will I meet with thee. It was, it was a place, a certain place in the midst of that camp where God would meet with his creation. And God, you'll remember, gave to Moses the instructions to construct that tabernacle according to very detailed specifications. And we find out from the book of Hebrews, chapters 8 and 9, it lets us know that the reason for those exact measurements and the, uh, the, all of the details and all the specifications is that God had designed this earthly tabernacle that Moses was to make. He had designed it from the pattern of the true tabernacle in heaven. And you see, what this earthly tabernacle was, was kind of like a, it was kind of like a, a huge tent. I mean, it was, it was really not much more dramatic than that. It was just like a huge tent that was divided into three sections, and it was to be set up at the center of Israel's camp, and it was to serve as, as we've talked about, the dwelling place of God, and it was to be the center of the religious and social and civic life of Israel. And, and God had so designed this, this tabernacle that when he was going to move them, the tabernacle could be folded up and carried with them, and then it would be set up at the next place, as I said last week, it was, it was God's mobile home, if you will. And you remember that they, they took the tabernacle with them into the promised land, and during their, their early years and their occupation there in, in Canaan, that tabernacle continued to serve as the center of Israel's worship. You see, actually, it, if you go from start to finish, it, it served Israel's worship needs for over 400 years. And I think a lot of times in our, you know, just coming through the history of the Old Testament and all that, I think we don't really understand. I mean, you know, we think that that was maybe that little 40-year period as they're wandering in the wilderness. We're talking about something that served their worship needs for over 400 years. But as time went on and, and Israel was now in the land, they, they move in, they become established, you'll recall that their king, King David, began to have a, a burden... And his burden was to do away with the, the temporary, provisional tabernacle. And he wanted to, to build a permanent dwelling place for God that was called a temple. You see, that was David's burden. And, and, and let me read to you what, what David said in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 2. David said, See now, I dwell in an house of cedar but the ark of God dwelleth with curtains he says you know what I finally come to realize something I live better on this earth than God does my house is better than God's house and brethren these things ought not so to be so he has this burden to see God get a permanent dwelling place 
But turn with me, if you will, to First Chronicles chapter 22. First Chronicles 22. I want you to see how God responds to David. First Chronicles 22 and verse 8, the word of the Lord came to David and said, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to thee, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon, which means peace or rest. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build an house for my name. And he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. And go to the book of First Kings, if you will. First Kings. Let me just take you on a little journey through this, this thing so you can see... The, the history of, of this first temple. First Kings chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says that King Solomon began to build the first temple. So you see the progression here. David says, I'm living better than God does. I want to build him a house. God says, I don't want you to build me a house. I want your son to do it. Okay. So what we see here is Solomon begins to build that first temple, what is commonly referred to as Solomon's temple. The year was approximately 966 B.C. 966 B.C. And that temple we find in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 38. That temple was under construction for seven years. And you'll notice in, in chapter 7 of 1 Kings and verse 51 that when the temple was completed, verse 51 says... So was ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Lord. And Solomon brought in the things which David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and the vessels that he put among the treasures of the house of the Lord. And in chapter 8, and verse 1, you'll notice that they, they call for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought in. And then in verse 6, they bring it into the holy place. And then check out verse 10. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house or the temple of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. And what you see here is God moves in to this first temple. He moves into the, the holy of holies and, and in the holy place the Shekinah glory of God is made manifest there. And in the rest of chapter 8... What it does is it records Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple to the Lord. And when he finishes his prayer, God responds to Solomon in chapter 9 and verse 3. A very, very significant verse. I read it to you last week, but I want you to see it in the context of the history of the temple here. And the Lord said unto him, okay, now Solomon's just completed this prayer of dedication of the temple. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built, to put my name there forever. And mine eyes and my heart 
shall be there perpetually. Now, as we're going to see here in just a second, that temple may not always be standing in that location. But don't miss what God says. My eyes and my heart are going to be there perpetually. I'm never going to get my heart and I'm never going to get my eyes off of this place. And then in chapter 10, it gives you an idea of just how absolutely incredible this, this temple was as word of it begins to travel to all parts of the world. And, and when you cross-reference 1 Kings chapter 10 with uh, the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 9 and specifically in verse 23, what you find is that the kings and the queens of the world begin to make their way to Jerusalem to check out this incredible temple and to hear the wisdom of the son of David who sits on the throne ruling over the nation of Israel. Don't have time to go into it, but it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture of what is going to happen in the not-too-distant future. The son of David is going to come sit on a throne in a temple in Jerusalem, and all of the kings and queens of the Gentile nations of the world will come and bow their knee to Israel's king. And that's what's going on in 1 Kings chapter 10. But most of you know what happened. Shortly thereafter, the nation begins to go into apostasy. Chapter 11, verse 1, tells you how it began. Look at what it says. But King Solomon loved many strange women. And when it means strange women, it's not like, Woo, she's weird. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about foreigners there. And verse 3 says that he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and, and check this out. And his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4, for it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And what you be, begin to see here in 1 Kings chapter 11 is a spiritual descent in Israel that finally leads to both the destruction of the city and of the temple and it takes place in 586 BC by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon the date was August 9th 586 BC it's referred to as Tisha B'Av by the Jews Tisha B'Av, Av is the month of August, and of course, Tish would be the, the ninth. Tisha B'Av, it, it, now that I've said that to you, you'll, you'll hear it. Because on that date, you know what? They still read the book of Lamentations to this day. Now, a lot of them don't even understand the full significance of what they're doing. But a Tisha B'Av, they still go through that, that, that whole deal because the temple in Jerusalem was, was destroyed. So that was the end of the, the first temple or Solomon's temple and as you know the nation of Israel goes into Babylonian captivity at this point but then 70 years later okay and this is where the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah fits into your Bible a remnant of Jews returned from Mesopotamia to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the walls of the city and of course the temple and this was the beginning of what is called the second temple Okay, now, now I want you to listen real carefully to what I'm saying here right now. 
You know, it sounds real simple. You know, you got the first temple, which was Solomon's temple, and then you got, okay, this is going to be the second temple. Okay, boys and girls, I can count and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But now listen, you've got to understand something. That this second temple goes in history by three different names or uh, there's three different time periods that are referred to when they begin to talk about this second temple. It goes through, I think what's on your study sheet, it goes through three different phases. Okay, the first phase of this second temple is what is called Zerubbabel's temple. And this was the temple that was, was reconstructed under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah this was the, the temple, you'll recall, turn over to the book of Ezra, if you would. Right after the book of, you know, you're in Kings, and you'll go through First and Second Chronicles, and then you'll come to Ezra, and look, chapter 3. Okay, so now, now don't, don't, don't flake out, because I'm telling you, this is going to piece together. You'll understand prophecy a whole lot better if you'll get this whole thing of the temple down. You guys flaking out on me already? Okay. We, we got this first temple. We've seen what happened. It gets destroyed. Now we're beginning to see this second temple come on the scene under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And, and I want you to see in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10 that when the builders laid the foundation of, of this thing, it says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David king of Israel and they sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid and I mean hey listen after 70 years in Babylonian captivity man there is just such a spirit you can see it a spirit of rejoicing of rejuvenation of revival i mean they are just absolutely stoked but many of the priests and levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house or the first temple when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people for the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off you see some of the older folks had seen the glory of that first temple and they they see the foundation that's laid for this thing and here's everybody hooting and hollering they're going This is, this is a disgrace. But the temple was, was completed in 516 B.C., exactly 70 years after the destruction of the first temple. And this Zerubbabel's temple served its purpose in Israel, did so for, for quite a few years, uh, somewhere around like 350 years or so. And obviously, again, nothing like the, the, the glory days of Solomon's reign, But then finally, in in 167 B.C., a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes comes into that temple, and he desecrates their temple by offering a pig on the altar. And of course, you you understand, I mean, the Jews can't even eat 
that nasty, dirty animal, much less put this thing on, on the altar in the temple. So he comes in, he desecrates the temple by offering this pig. He comes into the city of Jerusalem and into the temple he slaughters Jews by the thousands and thousands and he dedicates the temple as a shrine to Zeus. But then two years later, a, a Jew by the name of Judas Maccabee he leads an army into Jerusalem and he defeats Antiochus Epiphanes and he rededicates the temple to the Lord. And this is what is referred to as Maccabees Temple. And this is the second phase of that second temple. Okay, it's the same temple, but you see it's, it's gone through this, 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 this period of time where Antiochus Epiphanes has just desecrated this thing and so it goes through another revival during this this time for the uh, of the Maccabee period and it, it existed as the Maccabee temple for another 100 years and what takes place next is the city of Jerusalem is captured and taken over by a guy by the name of Herod the Great in around 63 BC and this is the the third and last phase of the second temple what is called Herod's temple okay so we, we've got this this first temple that was what, what what is the name that it goes by first temple was called what Solomon's temple that second temple is rebuilt and it's called Zerubbabel's temple it gets desecrated and then it becomes Maccabees talk to me y'all Maccabees temple and then this third and final phase Herod's temple and the way that it came down is about 20 years before Christ was born, 20 B.C. or so, in order to find favor with the Jews, King Herod ordered that the Jewish temple be re renovated. Okay? And actually, when we, when, you know, when we think about renovated, man, when we talk about renovated, you know, we're, we're thinking about, you know, maybe putting new wallpaper and getting new pictures and maybe a light or two or something like that. But listen, we're talking about, when he's talking about a, a renovation of this thing, it, 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 was, it was such a, a major remodeling and such an, an expansion, expansion project that it was practically a, a completely different building by the time that it was all done. In fact, it was, it was really a, a, a brand new building by the time that it was finished. We find even in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, in verse 20, it tells us that this temple was under construction for a period of 46 years. Now, the first one took seven years. This reconstruction job, this little renovation project by Herod, takes 46 years. And so that you might have an idea of what we're actually talking about, I provided for you on your study sheet. Look at the next sheet there an artist rendition of that temple on your study sheet. I mean, now, is, is that thing incredible or what? Uh, you know, and those are, those are people that you see on the stairs there, just to give you a little bit of the dimensions of, of this thing. In fact, what you find is that that temple was over 1,500 feet long and 900 feet wide. What, what that's like, it's like five football fields long, by three football fields wide. I mean, this is, this is an incredible thing. You, you know what? I, I was talking with someone yesterday, 
it, it would, you know what it would be like when you walk up to this place? It would be like walking up to Jacob's Field up in Cleveland where the Indians play. I mean, this is a, a massive, massive thing. And, and the thing that, that I want you, to, one of the reasons I wanted you to see this is, do you remember last week when I showed you in, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2? Remember, in fact, if you want to, you can go over there. The disciples were outside of the temple. They're over by the, the Mount of Olives, which was right next to the temple. And what they're doing in Matthew 24 is, is they're talking about this building that you're looking at on your study sheet there. And they're talking about the, the buildings of the temple. And remember what Jesus said? He said, you see all these buildings? You see this? I'm telling you, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, folks, that's the building that he's talking about. You know, I think, you know, last week when we were talking about this, I think most folks are probably thinking about, yeah, there's probably a room about the size of our gymnasium over there, and so it's probably no big trip. Let me tell you, it was a big trip. When Jesus said, you see these, this building here? I'm telling you, boys, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. And they all probably thought, I wonder what the spiritual meaning behind this is. And I, I told you last week how that the, the prophecy was fulfilled exactly the way that Jesus said it was, or would be, when in 70 A.D., and check this out, coincidentally enough, the date was... Tisha B'Av, August 9th, 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus came upon the city with his Roman legion, and they came in, and they absolutely annihilated the temple. The historian Josephus, who lived at that time and was even there at that time, said that the destruction was so great that if a visitor would have come to the temple mount after Titus came in, they would have not known there had even been a temple there. And that's the temple that we're talking about that's on your study sheet right there. So that was the temple past, the first temple, which was Solomon's. And then the three phases of the, the second temple, we talked about Zerubbabel's, Maccabees, and Herod's. You, you see that little timeline on your study sheet there underneath the picture. But all three of those are referred to as the second temple. Okay, but it was just variations of the same basic structure. Okay, is that, everybody feel like you got that? Okay, now let's talk about the temple future. The temple future. Both the, the Old and New Testament affirm the fact that a new temple will be situated on the temple mount in Jerusalem as a part of God's program for the nation of Israel in the last days. In fact, there may even be two future temples, or may be two phases of the same temple. It's hard to say for sure. But the first temple to be rebuilt is what we might call, uh, and this, uh, this is not a, you know, a word that you could throw out in the city of Jerusalem today and they'd know what you're talking about, so that we understand what we're talking about. We could call this, this first future temple that will be rebuilt the Tribulation Temple. The tribulation temple, the temple that will be rebuilt to fulfill the prophecies for the temple during the tribulation period. You, you see, there's, there's several prophecies in the Bible that in order to be fulfilled necessitate 
that there be a temple reconstructed on the Temple Mount by the midpoint of the tribulation period. And one of those prophecies is what got us into this whole thing in the first place. It's right here in Revelation chapter 11. Because what, what in verses 1 and 2, what John is commanded to do is he is commanded to go into the holy city. Now remember the time period we're talking about. In chapter 11, remember, it's that parenthesis that's dealing with the great tribulation of the second half of the seven-year tribulation, the last three and a half years of that thing. And John is commanded at that point to go into the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, and measure the temple of God. Okay. Now, it's very important, and I don't know for sure if some of you are quite connecting with, with all of this just yet, but you just cannot read over that. In order for John to be able to do that, it necessitates a few things. Now, it's easy for us now to see how this would come to pass, but I'm just telling you, before this century, if you lived in the 1800, 17, 16, 15, 4, all through there, this would have been the most unbelievable thing in all of the world for this prophecy to be made where John is to go at the midpoint of the tribulation and measure the, this, this temple. Because there's several things that it necessitates. Number one, it necessitates that Israel be in their homeland. It, now, now check this out. 25 years before John received the, the revelation that is in our Bible, the book of Revelation, 25 years before that, the Jews had been dispersed into every corner of the world, just like Deuteronomy 28 prophesied that they would. And it was that event that we just talked about just a second ago on Tisha B'Av 70 AD when Titus came in and leveled that city. At that point, they were dispersed. The Jews, the nation of Israel, were dispersed into every corner of the globe. And again, that's 25 years before John is told in the book of Revelation to do this. There's not even a Jew around, much less a temple. And little did John realize it, but the nation of Israel was going to remain dispersed into every corner of the world for another 1,853 years after 95 AD when he received that revelation you understand what I'm saying it had been gone for 25 years before he received the revelation it's going to be gone for another 1853 years after he'd received the, the revelation but for Revelation 11 1 and 2 to be fulfilled it necessitates that Israel be in their homeland and we have talked about this in the last several weeks how that miraculously that happened in this century in 1948 the events surrounding that are just absolutely mind-boggling and astounding even secular historians will give you the fact it's a miracle of God do, do the verses here Revelation 11 1 and 2 necessitate that Israel be in the homeland but number two it necessitates that the Jews be in possession of Jerusalem and see, not only were the Jews not in possession of Jerusalem in 95 A.D. when John received the revelation, though they became a nation in 1948, do you understand that they did not take possession of the city of Jerusalem until 1967? Folks, we're just talking about 
31 years ago. And we, we talked last week how that that thing came about as a result of the six-day war where God was so uh, totally involved, in again, in a miraculous way in making sure that those Jews get possession of that city. He made sure they got back into that land. And he said, now, uh, next thing I've got to do is make sure that they take possession of that city. Now, folks, we've watched that happen, most of us, in our own lifetime. And I'm telling you, those events are coming down because God is planning on fulfilling some prophecy here that he could do no other way. He had to get them in the homeland. He had to get them in possession of, of the city of Jerusalem. But not only does it necessitate those two things, it also necessitates necessitate the fact that there be a temple in Jerusalem for John to measure I mean, if he's going to measure the thing, there's got to be something there to measure. And again, in 95 AD, when John penned this revelation, there was no temple in Jerusalem for him to measure. Titus had already wiped the thing out. And what's even more is, as of today, May 31st, 1998, if God were to tell John to go today to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and measure the temple, though the Jews are in the homeland and though they do have possession of the city of Jerusalem, there still is no temple on the Temple Mount for him to measure. Now, there's a lot of things that are going on at this very moment that give every indication that that's getting ready to happen. In fact, I'm going to show you just a, a clip of a video here in just a minute. But listen, don't let the fact that there's not a temple on the Temple Mount this morning make you think that maybe you know the rapture is still you know, quite a ways down the way because, because I believe, and I'll show you here in just a, a second, I, I believe that the actual construction of the, the temple won't be till after the rapture anyway. So now listen, if you're thinking about, whew, man, I'm thinking the rapture is going to be at any moment, but if that temple isn't there, then okay, I guess we got a little breathing room. You have no breathing room because it's probably not going to go under construction until after the rapture. And like we saw last week, according to biblical prophecy, that temple doesn't have to be constructed, be constructed until, after, uh, until 42 months after the rapture, at the midway point in the tribulation period. And I promise you, if the rapture were to take place today, the temple is going to be sitting right in its proper location on the temple mount at that three and a half year point in the tribulation period. But understand that there are some key things that are going to have to happen before that third temple can be rebuilt. Because do you realize this morning, folks, that if, if all of us were to just say, you know what, hey, let's just, uh, let's just hop up at 747 this afternoon. Let's just cruise over to Tel Aviv. And so we fly into, there, into Israel there, and, and we hop a bus or two or three or whatever it would take to get us there, and we make our way to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Do you have any idea what we would see as we came to that location on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem this morning, you know what we'd find there? We'd find the second most holy shrine to the Muslims that is called the Dome of the Rock. It is second in significance to them, only behind Mecca, which would have been the home of Muhammad. You say, well, hey, this is no big trip. You know, I mean, if... If, if the Jews have possession of, of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, I mean, why don't they just, you know, flick this 
those guys in the Dome of the Rock at their little shrine want to just put that thing right off of it and be done with it. Well, there's two very good reasons. Number one, the Dome of the Rock is sacred to the Muslims because it is built right over Mount Moriah at the exact location where Abraham proved his faith and faithfulness to God through his willingness to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice to him. But even more than that, I mean, if it's going to be that significant to the Muslims, it's going to have to do a little bit more than just with Abraham. They believe that this particular location on the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock is, they believe that that is the sacred site from which Muhammad supposedly ascended to heaven. Now, you know, what's real interesting, now obviously you know that that's a myth, because that did not happen like it happened with the Lord Jesus Christ, but uh, Satan's always got a counterfeit. It, it did not happen. But what's interesting is that whole myth, that whole thing, and that whole location of that thing being the Dome of the Rock, nobody, nobody ever tied the Dome of the Rock into that event until around the 1920s and the 1930s as the Jews started making their way back into the homeland and it was nothing more than a fabrication that was being used as an attempt to arouse the sentiment of, of the Muslim population to the Dome of the Rock to make sure that the Muslims didn't let that thing go without a fight. And just a little footnote here, it was actually Yasser Arafat's uncle who was the one that concocted the story back there in the, the 20s and, and 30s. So number one, they don't flick them off the mountain because it's the second most holy shrine in the Muslim world. It's where they believe Muhammad ascended to heaven. You say, well, who cares? That leads to the second reason. You realize this morning that one out of every five people on this planet is a Muslim? And see, we live in Tuscarawas County, Ohio. And so, you know, you, most of us have, have never even met a Muslim. But folks, one out of every five people on this planet is a Muslim. And, and while you and I are sitting around, you know, on our duck praying that we might have boldness to open our mouth to share the glorious gospel, you know, with our friends and our co-workers and neighbors and family members, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world and with one out of every five people on the planet a Muslim and that number growing every single day listen messing with the dome of the rock is like just saying we would like to get started here World War three I mean folks listen we're talking about a major obstacle to rebuilding the temple here with what's what's going on there but do you remember you remember what Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 says is going to happen right at the beginning of the tribulation period Daniel prophesied that the last world dictator the Antichrist would make a seven-year peace treaty with the nation of Israel now, I believe that one of the reasons that the Jews will be so willing to sign this, this covenant with him is I believe that one of the first things, I believe at the beginning of the tribulation period, what is going to take place is I believe that the Antichrist is going to so orchestrate the details between the Jews and the Muslims that he allows the Jews to rebuild their temple on 
the Temple Mount and most likely he will probably even identify specifically for them the location of the Holy of Holies which is what most of them right now are just waiting for as soon as they find the Holy of Holies they're planning on rebuilding this thing and in Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 the same verse that talks about that it talks about that once the temple is rebuilt and the daily sacrifices have been reestablished as a part of Israel's so-called worship that at the midpoint of that seven-year treaty after three and a half years he'll put an end to their sacrifices and he'll walk into the temple and commit what Daniel called in Daniel 9 27 and what Jesus called in Matthew 24 verse 15 the abomination of desolation it's what Paul detailed for us in 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 when the Antichrist walks into that temple and sits on the throne and proclaims himself to be God and again for all of those prophecies to be fulfilled there has to be a temple there for for John to measure there has to be a temple there for the Jews to make sacrifices in I mean if the sacrifices are going to stop then they're going to have to start do you realize there hasn't been a sacrifice since 70 AD when Titus came in and leveled the thing not that's where the sacrificial system ended folks but what we see is it's reestablished during the tribulation period and again I believe that that's what the Antichrist is gonna orchestrate right at the beginning it's gonna be why Israel will say oh yeah man let's go for it man we can build our temple now but there's one more future temple that the Bible talks about and that is the millennial temple or the Messiah's temple and this is the temple that is so beautifully described in, in Ezekiel chapter 40 you, you owe it to yourself to go check out Ezekiel 40 in fact uh, chapters 40 to 48 talks about this millennial temple in, in Isaiah chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 would you just listen it says and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it and many people shall go and say come ye and let us go into the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem we're talking about the millennial temple and we you see it in Micah chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 Haggai chapter 2 verses 7 to 9 Zechariah chapter 6 verses 12 to 15 Zechariah chapter 14 verses 16 to, to 21 check those things out later folks it's that millennial temple it's where Jesus is gonna sit enthroned on the earth in that temple in Jerusalem it's just like what we saw in first Kings chapter 10 pictured in Solomon that's what's going to be taking place the millennial temple so we we've seen the temple past Solomon's temple the second temple comes on with Zerubbabel Maccabee and then Herod Titus comes in he levels that thing there's no temple on the planet to this very day and now let's take just a second to talk about the the temple present what's presently going on right now at this very moment concerning the temple and this is where I want, I want you to see this the footage of the video of what's taking place in Israel even as we speak 
concerning the, the temple. See right now. But you see, the Antichrist is one of the first things that he's going to do is unite this world politically. He is going to be that political figure. And so I believe there will be no problem whatsoever once we're raptured out of here and he comes on the scene. Everything that you've seen, it's all in place. Uh, Other parts of this video show uh, a model of of the temple. I mean, it's already all lined out. They already know what it's going to look like. Uh, Another place on here, and they've mentioned it on here, they already have the cornerstone for it and everything is in place. And if you're here this morning, you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I know that all of this that we've talked about today with the, the temple and history, you know, you're probably like, what does this have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you. Because all of these things point to the fact that we are living in the very last days of the last days before the rapture of Jesus Christ. When he takes off of this planet all of those who have entered into a relationship with God through him, through what he did when he died on the cross for our sins. And we believe that all of these things we've seen and we've talked about this morning, the the nation of Israel coming back and being formed as a nation in 1948, taking possession of the city of Jerusalem in 1967, all of these things that are presently going on, we believe that all of these are just pointing to the fact that the Antichrist will soon be on the, the scene here in this, in this country, or in, in the world. It'll take place immediately after believers in Jesus Christ have been removed. And that event is very, very soon. If you're here today and you've never received Christ, I'd love for you to, before you leave here, talk to one of the, the pastors who will be up on either side of our worship center as we're dismissed here in just a moment. If you've got questions about any of that, please, before you leave, see one of these men so that we can show you today how you can enter into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all of us that do know the Lord, all of these things should purify our lives and cause us to to be living in anticipation of our Lord's soon coming, doing all that we can do to reach the people of this world. Joe, why don't you come?